I think one of the biggest learning, one of the biggest teaching from the sport is that you have to accept that you can fail. And that's not 1% of an excuse to tell you that you don't need to try as hard because you're going to fail. Again, consistency, you go back there and you try hard. I used to say this to my kids. You look at the stats, wins and losses for players that are ranked in the top 100 in tennis. They lose more matches than they win at the end of the year. So you're mm. end up becoming a professional at accepting losses. But that doesn't diminish by one tiny bit the effort that you have to put in, the belief that you have to have. And it's tough. Eh? It's tough. You get slapped in the face and you have to go back again and start over. I think that's also extremely important and can be applied to business. Welcome to the World Class Leaders Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world-class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. And today I'm so excited to have with us Massimo Calvelli, who is the CEO of ATP, so the Association of Tennis Players. Massimo is the CEO, has been actually appointed as CEO in January 2020. The highly experienced Italian has been instrumental in driving a new strategic plan for the ATP that delivers some of the most radical reforms since the organization's inception. Prior to ATP, Massimo was employed by Nike, where he oversaw all aspects of global tennis sports marketing and led negotiations with many of the sports global icons. Massimo, welcome to the show today. Good morning, Andrea. Thank you very much for having me. Right. So today we are essentially switching gears because, you know, so far, guys, we have interviewed primarily CEOs of typical corporation, right? So we interview CEOs from medium, large companies. And today we bring to the show someone that is still working, of course, in, in a business fashion, but also has a very much connection to a different world, right? So the sports world, which is very close to me, but also very close to probably all of you there in the audience today. Not just that, there are two reasons why I invited Massimo. One is because he's a great guy, but also because he's working in one of the most interesting fields, at least from my from my point of view, because it's tennis, I'm a tennis freak, I'm a tennis player, I'm a tennis passion. So for me, it's it's a natural conversation. But also because I see a lot of connections between the sports world and the business world, primarily in relation to performance. So that's why I invited Massimo, and I'm sure that would be a great conversation. So Massimo, just to kick this off, you were a tennis player, correct? I was an, an average tennis player, yes. That's what I would say. So what was your best? ranking or your best performance ever you still remember that my best ranking 255 in the in the world yeah in the atp ranking yes great 
And by the way, I remember you, although I haven't seen you many times on the TV, but I remember you because I was so passionate about tennis when I was a little bit younger. So the other thing I would like to ask you is, let us understand a little bit more your career in briefly, by the way, because I think it's interesting. So you left the professional tennis to then start in, you know, working in, in organizations and you work for some major sporting goods equipment company like Wilson, I think as far as I remember as well, and then Nike. How was that transition for a professional sport player into the business world? In one word, I would say completely unplanned and unscripted. Because <laughs> like, assume many other athletes, right? You focus a long period of your life on doing one thing and you try to do it at the highest level. And realistically speaking, when you focus on one sport, I'm not sure there is a lot of room to think about what is going to happen 10 years after once I stop playing, once I stop competing. So. I realized one day that professional tennis probably wasn't the right thing for me. I wanted to have more options, but I really didn't know what those options could have been. In the very beginning, I wanted to become a lawyer. So I went to law school and I thought, to be honest with you, I really thought it was going to be that. I was going to be a lawyer in Italy. And then life happens. And, you know, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to help Wilson, the distributor of Wilson Sporting Goods in Italy at the time, part-time while I was finishing my studies. And that's basically how I I sort of started like working in the sport industry. And then one thing leads to another from a basic consultancy. I ended up working in marketing for Wilson in Italy, then in sales, which was another unexpected jump. I did a little bit of product, then ended up working for Wilson's parent company, Armor Sports, Armor Sports Group doing a few different things, then finally landed at Nike in 2011, where I spent 10 years doing a few different things. And then the ATP, as you mentioned, early 2020. So, but if I had to go back, I still remember like thinking, you're on a lane, you're on a path, I'm going to be a lawyer, probably live in Florence and all of that. None of that happened. So completely <laughs> unsuspected. Which is not so surprising, you know, for people like us, I think that, you know, things change very quickly and we take path that we, we did not maybe expect in the past. And by the way, you joined ATP, of course, during one of the worst periods in our own life, right? So the pandemic that has actually had such a huge impact on tennis and by the way, in all sports, how was actually that time for you? It was so critical as we have seen, you know, from the media. I'll say a few things. I think I have a few different thoughts with regards to the pandemic. The first one, I didn't know otherwise, right? I started at the ATP January 1st, 2020. I think February, we were already dealing with the first cases of COVID. I think it was north of Italy. The whole ATP tour, which is basically the circuit of our tournaments, came to a full stop beginning of March. I was still trying to find my balance and try to get on my feet when we were already dealing with COVID. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think I value a lot fresh perspective, right? And so not sort of not having any bias, any preconception of what the ATP should have been and what the ATP should have done, I think in a way right. helped. In terms of challenges, obviously, no matter the business, ultimately with COVID, you would have experienced disruption. But I would say, particularly if you focus on the world of sports, tennis was... I mean, punished, destroyed by COVID for two reasons. One, it's truly a global sport, right? If you think you're an avid tennis fan, but the way the ATP tour works, you have a a large group of, of individuals coming from a number of different countries, going into one country to compete for one week. And then the following week, 
you're meant to go elsewhere. So imagine the complexity that you have to face when you're trying to move ultimately a traveling circus week after week from one country to the other. So that was a killer. Yes. Which in other sports, take the Premier League and all of that, when you're competing within one country, one nation, obviously still highly disruptive, but different sets. As a marginal impact as a sport like tennis that you're traveling every week, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And then the other piece I would call out is the fact that Unfortunately, I say, because we're trying to change that, our events, tennis tournaments, heavily rely on revenues coming from ticketing. So the second that you close the gate or you even operate a reduced capacity, your main revenue streams goes away completely or ultimately significantly reduced. So yes. you can imagine from a from a financial standpoint what it does to the PL of a tennis tournament. It's a killer, right? So I would say that was a tough part. So coming in fresh perspective, that's good. Incredible disruption. Um, But I would say that with the incredible disruption also, I think it helped in ultimately changing things. I think sense of urgency and discomfort, sometimes, sometimes you need it, right? You need to have pain to ultimately make the decision to change something. And if you remain within your comfort zone, it's it's harder to take the risk, to take the leap and make changes. So I think in a way, in the last three years, it's fair to say that we have approved the largest uh, set of reforms that the ATP has seen since its inception, So which is incredible in a period like this. But I think also one of the reasons why we were able to do it is because of that sense of stress and urgency created by COVID. So an interesting period, but I think not entirely negative, for sure. No, and you're right. I think if there is always something positive in crisis or situations like this, it's actually he's giving us the opportunity to come up with different ideas and different solutions because we are we have to, right? We are forced into, as you said, actually correctly, is stretching ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And definitely you have developed other ideas how to bring ATP forward with all the constraints that we have seen. And by the way, from a fan perspective, you know, what we have seen how COVID has impacted tennis was so big. So I can just imagine how for you guys was dealing on the background with all the current situation, all the situation at that time. We might probably come back to this in terms of what's the future looks like. For those people, they are maybe there, they're not necessarily either tennis fan or they don't know much about ATP. Would you like to say in a few words, what is ATP and why does it exist? Yeah. So ATP stands for Association of Tennis Professionals. And the word professional is important because it's both players and tournaments. It has a very unique structure. It's a membership corporation, non-for-profit, out of Delaware in the U.S. It sounds like very technical, but I think ultimately the easy way to say it is that it represents the interest of all tennis players and tennis tournaments. It is a unique organization in many different ways. One, the set of stakeholders is very polarized and very diverse. So you have all the tennis tournaments with the exception of the Grand Slams, but ultimately represented by the ATP. You have over 60 events across 30 plus countries. So truly global, truly diverse. And you have tournaments of different tiers and their economics, their business model is completely different one from the other. And then on the other side, you have all the players and also they're a very a very mixed bag, right? You have Novak Djokovic or Rafa Nadal on one side, like powerhouses, but it goes all the way down to players that are not necessarily so visible and they're not doing so well, right? So you have two groups of stakeholders 
that are very involved in what we do, quite frankly. And ultimately, the ATP has to perform, I would say, a multifaceted role in the sense that you are a governing body, right? Or you operate as a league administering and governing the sport. At the same time, you're a member organization. So you're supposed to look after the interests of both tennis players and tennis tournaments. Like I said, a very diverse set of stakeholders. But you're also a rights holder, right? So what I realized coming to the ATP is that it has to play a lot of different roles and to keep that flexibility and ability to jump from one to the other is not easy and it's key to the success of what the ATP does. Um, the other thing that for me was very interesting coming in, it's a small company. People, when they think about sport leagues, they think like huge corporation, right. many companies in the business world that are much larger. It's a small company, but like anything in sport, very visible. Everybody has an opinion. A lot of people follow. So you tend to be under the spotlight and the scrutiny of all fans, audience, public opinion all day long, even if it's a small company. So it's interesting. So all of that to say that it's a very unique organization that ultimately has to wear a lot of hats and do a lot of different things. And whatever you do, like I said, receives a lot of uh, scrutiny. Yeah, and I will actually like to come back to the point of managing different, uh, such a large set of different stakeholders, and which is essentially what you just described. Before that, I'm so curious, is a question that we ask to every, honestly, every leaders that come to the show, is what's the future for ATP? I mean, we mentioned a little bit earlier in, in your bio description that you have been through a major transformational initiatives, transformational projects for ATP. I suppose something was much in line with COVID, as you described, but what's the transformation that you are bringing to ATP? And what is the does the future look like? What has to be ATP in the future? Look, I would say in very simple terms, what we've tried to do is to reposition the ATP as an entertainment brand. I think okay. the, the mindset was a little bit more members focused. And we use the more the word members to describe tennis players and tennis tournaments, right? So there was a little bit of that mindset, I would say. So we tried to reposition it as an entertainment brand and primary focus is to serve the consumers, to serve the fans like you, right? You watch tennis and we want to make sure that the product is on point. And when I say product, we look at tennis as a product. That's what ultimately our offering to the sport fans. So I think that repositioning and that reset of the mindset ultimately has permeated everything that we've been doing for the last three years. We will continue to focus on that. I think we've done a lot of work on everything that relates to the ATP system. And maybe maybe this is too technical for the audience, but when you look at tennis, even people that follow tennis, there is a level of fragmentation that is very hard to understand and grasp, right? You have the four grand slams. People know about Wimbledon. They know about the US Open. How does that relate to the ATP? And then there is a WTA. There is an organization that focuses on women's tennis. Even just a, somebody that follows tennis, but is not like an avid tennis fan, all of this is very hard to grasp. So that yeah, is, it looks fragmented for, yeah, you know, for many people. Yeah highly fragmented there is an incredible degree of fragmentation so we've been trying to focus on reducing the fragmentation and the lens for that is focusing on the fans like i said making sure that the tennis product which the atp doesn't own the grand slams don't own it's the sport itself right focusing on the good of the sport in the longer term for the fans has been the number one priority that has been guiding us for the last three years and i think we'll continue to do that 
in the first three years, we mainly focused on opportunities within the ATP system. Now, as we move into the next phase, we're going to focus more on opportunities outside the boundaries of the ATP. Like I said, there is a women's circuit out there. They do exactly the same thing that we do. So why don't we get closer and we collaborate more and we integrate more. The Grand Slams, they sort of operate a little bit in an insular way. Now, less than before, I have to say. So there is more collaboration than ever. But I think the opportunity is there, right? Driving that mindset of serving the fans. And ultimately, we're not competing with each other. We're competing with the broader entertainment industry. Yeah, I love this. I love the focus on integration. And I, I suppose there are cross-pollination opportunities, which is also very important from a marketing standpoint. So let's move a little bit more into your role as a CEO, right? So you mentioned, you know, you have so primarily the two major audience for you is, you know, the players and then the tournaments, but also, you know, all different stakeholders. You mentioned the WTA, other organizations, the Grand Slam. Is that one of your major challenges as CEOs or what is the most important things for you right now in terms of being an effective CEO for ATP? But stakeholders management, for sure, is a key aspect, right? And especially in such a diverse and, like I said, at times fragmented environment, the ability to sort of remain focused on the North Star, which is the strategy, while engaging with different stakeholders, different groups, they have different needs, different opinion, and staying the courts. That is a challenge, but I thought I also think it's extremely important with all the disruption, COVID that we talked about and all of that, if there is one thing that we've done right, we always went back to the North Star. Whatever that is, you stay the course. And I think that's probably part of the challenge that any business has to face, right? You get pulled in a million different directions. Everybody has a different opinion. Social media ultimately provides a platform to every single person to give an opinion, regardless if they're prepared or not. So how confident and strong are you around your plan? Where do you want to be? And I think you need to go back at it and try to not make a lot of changes. Obviously, you have to be nimble. You have to make changes. There is elements of adaptation. I think I would say if there is one thing that I've done my entire career is adapting to new things that I wasn't ready for. Having said that, once you get to the point that you think that there is one direction, which is the right direction, you have to give yourself the time to get there and you have to stay the course. So for me, that is incredibly important. And Sometimes, going back to your initial question, sometimes uh, when you get like pulled in a million different directions, I have to make a mental exercise of resetting and say, what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to get? And what's the next step if we want to go in that direction? So that refocusing consistently on what the North Star is, for me, has been extremely important. Yeah, I love that. And and by the way, I do a lot of work with clients on defining that North Star because sometimes, you know, clients, they don't even know what's the North Star. And I think the interesting part of what you said, in my opinion, is and you mentioned social media, you have, comparing to the traditional businesses, you have potentially a lot of feedback coming from the fans, which is essentially the audience that you are serving. So I think there is a very high risk of getting pulled from your current journey and then move into different direction just based on the feedback that you essentially get. So I think that is an interesting point. So it sounds like keeping everyone in the organization aligned with that North Star is definitely one of the most important jobs for you. Anything else, any other challenge that you see besides managing the stakeholders, making sure that you stay on course on your North Star? What else do you see as a, as a CEO of an organization like ATP? 
I would say cultural change is a big focus. And it's like, sounds so vague. What does that mean? But if I had to, even going back to my days in Nike, when I arrived, they wanted somebody that was completely removed from Nike, no connections that would come in with like, why canvas approach? And you come in and you're like, takes a moment to understand how things work. Uh, yeah, like it's not like you arrive day one. I see a lot of people, they arrive day one in a company and they're like, I would like to think they, they pretend to have a clear view and a clear direction because changing companies and learning new things takes a moment. And there is, you feel it, there is a moment of ownership where you start figuring it out, right? Which you don't have day one. You get like, we're all learning all day long, right? So you go to a new company, they speak a new language, they have a new culture, different processes. They use the word marketing or merchandising in a different way. So what merchandising in Nike has a different meaning than merchandising in Wilson. So you have to learn that. So you go through that initial phase. And then that's when you start forming the idea, right? And you're like, okay, now I got it. I got a grasp, high level. I understand how this is working. And we need a change. We need a new direction, right? The North Star that we talked about earlier. So you define that and then you have to implement it. And it has to stick. And implementing it structurally, it's easy. I mean, I'd say it's easy, but if you want to reorganize an entire function or reorganize a company like we've done at DATP, okay, you sit down and you start looking at how do you redesign this from scratch and you start moving the boxes around and now you create an optimized structure that you think is going to work and it's going to deliver value. What that doesn't take into account is the fact that you have people in those boxes and people have views, opinions, they have biases. They have been living according to certain principles for a long, long time. And changing their mindset, changing their culture is not as simple as reorganizing a company. So for me, the cultural change is the one that always amazes me in how difficult it is. Because even three years in the company, I realize sometimes they're like, hey, we failed here. We're just like, why is this person or this group of people saying this? We failed. How did it happen that they're not on board? with a new approach, with a new view, with a new opinion or a new way of doing things, and you still have that resistance to change. So that ability of ultimately implementing changes that stick to people, that are like culturally, that people truly own and embrace, they make it their own, right? That's what makes the difference for me between success and failure, because ultimately, the second you're a manager, you're going to be as successful as your team is. I always say that. The assumption that you're going to be a phenomenal leader and drive success on your own doesn't work. The people around you or every single person ultimately has to push in the same direction. And if they make it their own vision, strategy, plan, goal, then chances you're going to be successful. And if they don't, it's tough. It's always tough. It's always like push and pull. Agash, I love this, Massimo, because, I mean, you introduced two elements They are so critical for essentially driving performance in organization, right? So you introduce the element of mindset, behavior, so cultural changes, but also then you introduce the element of ownership, which is very close to me, by the way, because I do believe that most organizations, they don't actually have that sense of ownership that you just described. Most of the time, that's what happens. You see people in organization essentially dealing with their own turf, dealing with their own stuff, and that's what normally leads to is actually working in silos and everyone keep working on different agendas. And there is no one single level of ownership as you described, which ownership is actually, to me, it's much more than taking responsibility. It's actually owning the all. It's owning together the same success. 
feeling that we are part of the things together and we are actually responsible for delivering results collectively, not as an individual, which is a great point, actually, what you made. And back to the point of culture, how it's difficult to change mindset in people. I mean, I do work with clients working on changing mindset. And mindset normally drives behavior, right? So if people, they don't see things differently, unfortunately, they will keep taking the same action. So then the same predictable results. So how did you find changing mindset and behaviors in your role? It's very difficult, honestly, but what has been your formula, your way to deal with mindset in organization in such a fast changing environment? Look, that's a tough question. I'm not sure there is like an answer that says, okay. Yeah, it's a tough question. This is going to cut it. I would say consistency helps. Going back to what I said earlier, it's like if you keep changing direction, adjusting, people are going to get lost. So there has to be an element of consistency. There is an element of focusing on priorities, right? So we did an exercise. We had a, a management consulting group come in for three, four sessions during the summer. And we took some of our most talented individuals from different groups, right? And I think what we ended up spending time on was like sort of mapping out all the different things that we were working on, right? So different departments, comms, you have business development, you have technology, you have officiating that are ultimately the ones that are officiating the sport. They all have different needs and they work on a number of projects and initiatives. When you put them on a wall, it's scary the number of things that you end up doing. Now, when you start from there, that you have so many different things, it's extremely hard to create a connection between what somebody's working on in an individual department and, again, the North Star, the overall direction. So the ability to say no, the ability to not be reactive, especially for an organization like us, like I said, a member association in a way. So there is an expectation that we do things for our members. It's critical because if you, every time that somebody beeps or every time that somebody posts something, we take action and we start a new project, we start a new initiative, then you're going to end up exactly where we were with a wall that is not big enough to fit all the projects and the initiatives that we were working on. So then you need to take a step back and say, okay, we need to clean this up. What matters and what doesn't matter, right? And obviously, if you manage to reduce that wall to not a handful, you're still going to work on a lot of different things at the same time, but all stuff that ultimately has a clear correlation to the North Star, for me, that helps you to make cultural change because ultimately, no matter what department I'm working in, I have a feel, I have an understanding of the fact that whatever the project I'm working on today correlates directly to the broader company strategy. Too often, I mean, if you take anyone, any position in the company, and you ask them, okay, how does this impact the strategy? The main overarching strategy the company has, a lot of them don't, they can't give you an answer. But if you think about it, it's scary, right? Because ultimately you dilute the efforts and instead of everybody pushing in the same direction, which is what I said earlier, all over the map, right? So for me, that is also important. Consistency, number one. Two, prioritizing. And three, accepting the fact that you can fail. I think we start with the assumption that you have a new direction, you have a new strategy, and it has to work. Like, okay, how does that work? A lot of companies fail. A lot of people fail in general. That assumption that we believe in something, but we also accept the fact that it could fail. And then doesn't mean one tiny bit that we're going to try less, not as hard, right? Which is something I think it comes also from tennis for me as the sport that I played. But I think 
many other people that have been in sport, that have been professional athletes. I think one of the biggest learning, one of the biggest teaching from the sport is that you have to accept that you can fail. And that's not 1% of an excuse to tell you that you don't need to try as hard because you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. I see it so often. Like, so, you know what? I'm not sure it's going to work. Should I try that hard? And no, it doesn't work like that. You roll out every single day. And there are bad days, obviously, and all of that. But again, consistency, you go back there and you try hard. You look at the stats, wins and losses for players that are ranked in the top 100 in tennis. They lose more matches than they win at the end of the year. So you're mm. becoming a professional at accepting losses. That doesn't diminish by one tiny bit the effort that you have to put in, the belief that you have to have. And it's tough. Eh? You get slapped in the face and you have to go back again and start over. So I think that's also extremely important and can be applied to business. I love that. Wonderful. And we're talking about players. I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, there are players, they are completely different category, right? And the Novak of the world, the Rafa and the Roger before, but then there are so many, which is the wider population of players. Unfortunately, they got comfortable, but not because they want to, but they're losing, losing many matches. And hopefully, you know, I suppose that is when the learning loop comes to place, right? So learning as much as you can, so then you can apply next time when you play the next matches. So and that's actually fantastic connection to the next question I have for you, Massimo, is you were a tennis player. You deal, although not directly, maybe by your team, clearly most of your people, with a lot of players, they are anyway successful. Just the fact that they are there, they're playing competitive tennis, they play international sports. Let's take, for example, the first top 100. Without discounting the other, I would say the large population anyway of tennis players, they are professional and they are extremely successful. What did you learn as a CEO from their experience? Maybe from your personal experience, but primarily you're having everyday lunch with Roger or Rafa, et cetera, but clearly you know them and you know what drives them or what driven them to reach the top of their performance. What's the connection and the lesson that we can apply in our life as a business leaders like you or other people there in the audience today? Look, I'll say one thing. I've been working with athletes for many years, also in prior jobs. Mm-hmm. So I've been around athletes for a while. The one thing that strikes me the most every single time is that they are human in the sense like some of the feats, of, especially in tennis, I'm looking at Djokovic, Nadal and Federer from the last few years, but also many others before. The level of pressure, I mean, tennis is brutal. It's an individual sport. There is no physical contact. You travel all year around. So you're sort of like jumping from one place to the other. The score format is, it kills you mentally. So the amount of pressure that you have is mind boggling, right? And then you see somebody that wins a Grand Slam 10 times, like Novak or Rafa. You're like, these people must be like machines. They're like, they don't have feelings. They don't have emotions. They're like made of steel. How is that possible? Because... Just leave it. I mean, I've lived it at a much lower level. Just one point, big point in a tough moment in a match, it breaks you. Mentally, it truly breaks you. And these guys, they've done for so long, there is an element of longevity in their career and an element of consistency in their performance. You end up thinking they're like, they're not human. They're not, they're different. And then what you realize when you talk to them and you get closer to them, they go through the same process of fear, tension, stress. And they overcome it so many times, which is incredible, right? You make, don't become immune to it. It's not like uh, today I'm not going to be uh, tight or tense or nervous or stressed. You go play an event, you have to be seven days in a tunnel. Or if it's a longer event, for some of the tournaments are two weeks. You have to be two weeks in a tunnel mentally. You finish the match, shake hand. It's first thought, 
next match. When we're going to play next. So there is no relax. There is no let go. It is like, it's incredible the, the amount of pressure they deal with. What always amazes me, and again, one thing that you try to, I try to tell my kids as a learning, it's not that they don't go through the same fears, the same concerns, the same worries, days off, injuries, stuff that you cannot predict, right? The variables that are being thrown at you. And you played a phenomenal match yesterday. Today you're injured. You have to play another match tomorrow. How do you make mm. that work? You didn't know it was going to happen. So they go through the same journey, emotionally, mentally, and they overcome it so often, right? It's magic. It's incredible. And especially in tennis where one point can dictate a different outcome, right? The match can go in a completely different way. It amazes me. So for me, that's the biggest learning. So nobody has a crystal ball. We don't have magic wands and all of that. You have to go through the process as painful as it seems sometimes and you Go back to what you know, what you're best at, and you consistency, and you go back at it over and over and over. Yeah. And by the way, back to your point about no star and focus, I strongly believe from my personal experience dealing with performing leaders is focus is probably the most important element of success or performance. Actually, I had a chat that was a couple of years ago, probably, or even less on a social media platform. You guess with Dominic Herbati, I'm sure that you remember. And Dominic was explained, Dominic, as far as I understand, so for those people in the audience, they don't know Dominic Herbati, was a tennis player from Czech Republic, as far as I remember, or Slovakia, I don't remember. Slovakia, Slovakia. Slovakian. He was probably top 20, top 30, probably-ish. I think that was his maximum, best ranking. But no, sure. But regardless that to that, I think he's one of the fewest players that actually he has beaten Roger, Rafa, and Novak in his career, as far as I remember. And he mentioned that when he was playing with Rafa, particularly with Rafa, the day before in the preparation, what he learned from him is his ability to vision the match for the day after. So he had a very clear mental map how he wants to run the game. So essentially he said, I've seen this element in a mindset only from Rafa and a few other players. So in other words, the ability to be extremely focused on what he was doing, which is also one element of mindset performance, you know, think about the principle of flow, you know, be completely focused on the task and in the specific moment. Is that one of your findings too in terms of mindset, the Massimo of top performers is the ability to be to focus on anything else that you would like to add on mindset element? I would say if you use the word focus on doing fewer things as prioritizing, I think that's an area where I can do better. I would actually say that on a personal level and also from a company standpoint, that's going to be a priority going forward for us to focus on fewer things. But if you use the word focus on be present and fully committed to the moment, no matter what that is, yes, 100%. I'm a big believer in that. So there is no such a thing as not being fully committed to anything that you do, right? So a lot of people ask, okay, trying to merge and combine professional life with personal life. And it's like, how do you do that, right? Because you're competing, everybody, no matter the job that you have, you're competing in so many different arenas throughout the day. You wake up in the morning and you have to be a husband and you have to be a father and you have to be whatever your job is and then you're working on a budget and then you try to work out and then you're trying to have a three minutes conversation with a friend or with your parents so and there is no transition right it's just like it's instant it's automatic instant there is no defense anymore there is no readjustment anymore with zoom teams 
emails, it's a consistent transition from one role to the other. And how do you do that? It's not easy. And for me, the only thing is that like you have to be present 100%. Whatever that is in that moment, mm. you have to be 100% committed and present. The rest can wait. Too often I see it, I see it with the younger generation that you're doing seven things at the same time. I do have a hard time understanding how that can lead to doing anything good. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little bit like old style and old fashioned in terms of mindset, but I was talking to somebody else the other day about we were doing cold exposure with a colleague of mine and like you have to be present. You have to be present. It requires energy and it's not like a, a pleasant experience. You're sitting in like cold water for a long period of time, but it takes energy. It takes commitment. It requires that you're there with your entire person, your emotions. Yeah, you have to be there. And if you're not there, realistically, the experience is going to lose and it's not going to work. So no matter what it is that you do, the focus means be present. Yes, that's for me, it's number one priority. Yeah, you're right. You know, especially with family, you know, we tend to fail quite dramatically sometimes, you know, when we are not present, sometimes as well as with employees, right? Sometimes we, because we are either concerned or thinking something different. So the ability to listen intentionally, be there really for other people, I think it's key. So it's uh, mastering that skill, I think is so important for anyone, but clearly as well for senior leaders. Okay, great. Unfortunately, with Massimo, I think I can stay with you for hours because it might lead me to ask him more questions than I thought or than I need to, but maybe for another time, maybe for a coffee together. But I would like to close this conversation that was great so far anyway. So with a very three quick question and answer for you, Massimo, and see what is your view. So one is, in a very few words, what has been maybe the major learning across all of your career, if there is one? If I had to pick one thing, I would say you're never quite ready. So no matter the opportunity, the expectation is that I'm going to be fully baked product, ready to go. Never. It's been consistent in my entire career. Every single job that I had, I wasn't ready. Every big moment in my life, I wasn't ready, which leads me to you have to bet on yourself. You just have to bet on yourself and go in confident and do your best, right? Going back a little bit to the tennis match approach. If you don't bet on yourself, who else is going to do it? So probably the biggest thing that I learned throughout my career. Nice. And by the way, this said by a CEO is such a huge, important message for those people that they believe, you know, that being a CEO is something that you were born with, right? So you were ready to be a CEO. Very few people really appreciate the fact that many CEOs, not only CEOs, but real CEOs, they're in a position, they do, do their best to make decisions and to take great actions. But the reality, you know, they'll never be ready, as you mentioned. So such a big and vulnerable message. So thanks for sharing this, Massimo. Next question is more about, is there anything maybe that you would have done differently across your career? I mean, you, or is something that you feel okay with that? You don't have any specific regrets? I would say I go back to what I mentioned earlier when you asked me the question about focusing. I would do fewer things. There are fewer things. A lot <laughs> of the stuff that you do that you worry about, you spend so much energy. It's like a big deal today. Then you look back three months later, like what happened with that? Didn't go anywhere, right? And there is a lot of that. There is a lot of waste. So, and everything distracts and everything takes energy away. So I would say if I had the chance to go back and go through the same journey one more time, I would do fewer things. Good. Excellent. Right. So final question about learning. So I'm a big fan of learning and I do believe, you know, we should build learning organizations. So the ability for leaders to learn as they do their job, I think for me is so, what is your personal approach to learning? How you learn as a leader? 
So I think, look, I think you learn through experiences. I try to do stuff that puts me in a space where ultimately I do what I said before, that I'm fully committed, I'm fully present. There is no space for distraction and I'm fully immersed into doing something. I love climbing as an example, because there is no room for distraction. You can go to right. the gym and still be distracted and think about a phone call or a problem at home or like the mortgage, whatever that is. When you're climbing, you just like you think about climbing because every single cell in your body needs to focus on that one thing. So it reminds me of how important it is to be present. So I like that. And then look, you learn in many different ways today. It can be a podcast and all of that. Reading certainly is probably, for me, the best way of learning new things or sort of like absorbing new perspective, new ideas. I used to read a lot, like really a lot, like over 50 books a year. Every week wow. I used to, I can't do it anymore because right now, realistically, with all the stuff that I have going on, I can't take two hours a of day. Course. But when I do it, like going back to what I said earlier, I want to be consistent. If it's 11 minutes, it's 11 minutes. That's all I do. The phone is away, nobody else around me, and I'm fully focused. I have a pen with me and I underline things and... There is stuff that I like. I go back, I write it somewhere else so that I don't lose track of it. So fully committed to that window. Great. And I'll do actually the same. So I take a lot of notes when I'm reading because I, I don't want to forget it. I want to actually come back to this. Is there any book, by the way, Massimo, that really made a huge difference or impact in your career, on your life? Something that you remember is worth mentioning? I mean, for me, look, two books that I think are great to be read hand in hand is one is the Memoirs of Adrian the Roman emperor, and the other one is the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. They're very different books. They live more or less the same moment, one generation apart, same period. And first one is a novel, is a fiction, but there is a strong pillar of authenticity around the facts. And you see this man, Adrian, is like truly human, vulnerable. I mean, it was like living at a time that was, <laughs> compared to the challenges that we're facing today, is... Uh, mind-boggling but you can the thought process all the choices how they're made and all of that it's really an incredible insight into the soul of a phenomenal individual the first one and then the second one the meditations of marcus aurelius it's just a small book wrote almost two thousand years ago by not for himself not for other people and it's so actual in some of the stuff that he says to himself that you can truly apply it like basically in life all day long. And you can agree or disagree. There is a lot of stuff there, but it's amazing how fresh modern it, it is. So it's a book that I read a few times. One of those books you like to go back and read every now and then, you know, like uh, just a piece. It's not like uh, probably the one book that I would recommend to everybody is probably that one. I'm so glad actually that you mentioned these two books because normally when I ask this question, we come up with very business-oriented books and you actually bring in something from the past and lessons from the past. I mean, there is a lot of great conversation right now about stoicism, bringing back stoicism in our world, in our lives. So actually, I love that. Great suggestion. I will put some the references in the show notes for the audience so if they want to go back and see these books. Massimo, it was an amazing conversation. Where people should go if they want to know more about you and ATP? Oh, well, for sure, LinkedIn, or like they reach out through LinkedIn or our team is always available. And like, uh, we're all about focusing on the fans. So the more the merrier. Fantastic. So Massimo, thank you so much for this conversation. I loved every single moment of that. So thank you so much for being part of the show. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you very much. 